0: Are you haunted by the idea that random people you pass on the street might have no idea that you're a fan of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy? Well, it's time to fix that by ordering a Geek's Guide to the Galaxy t shirt over at geeksguide.threadless.com. Many styles and colors to choose from, collect them all. So that's geeksguide.threadless.com. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents.
1: The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy.
0: And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 488 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Robbie Suave. He's a senior editor at Reason, and author of the book Panic Attack, Young Radicals in the Age of Trump. His work has also appeared in the New York Times, the Daily Beast, and U.S. News and World Report. And Forbes named him to the 30 under 30 list in the category of law and policy. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new book, Tech Panic, Why We Shouldn't Fear Facebook and the Future. And now here's our interview with Robbie Suave. All right, so we're here with Robbie Suave. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you. Okay, so first of all, how big of a science fiction fan are you? I am a pretty significant science fiction fan. Um, yeah, yeah.
1: Are you kidding? And fantasy. <laughs> and I, I was once called uh, DC's uh, most sought after dungeon master for D and D. So I don't know if you want to get into any of that. But uh,
0: uh, are you kidding? I definitely want to get into that. So yeah, <laughs> actually, I was going to ask you about that. That was, that was the spectator. So uh, yes. Why? Why are you the most sought after? Dungeon Master?
1: I have no idea. Maybe everyone else isn't very good, but I do run <laughs> uh, I run a couple I well right now I'm DMing two two groups and I'm playing in a third although that one came to an end and I think they're going to rapture my character into a different <laughs> group. So there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, overlap between my various worlds and characters, et cetera. But uh, it's so much fun. Oh, my goodness.
0: So who are are the people that you play with just like old friends or journalists or? Other
1: journalists, other political journalists. Uh, I have a group with my colleagues at Reason Magazine and then a group for some, yeah, kind of random journalist people who are friends of mine.
0: That's really cool. And so do you ever have like famous... Uh... Madeline Albright or anybody? No, no,
1: no, no one of that sort. Although the because obviously I write for a libertarian magazine. So my primary group is very sort of libertarian in play style Uh, the other group uh, tax a bit uh, further to the right. And the main difference I've noticed is the group that tax further to the right does like combat and kind of killing everything they encounter and killing, you know, characters i come up with whereas the libertarians want to talk their way or exchange things or out of every situation they will avoid combat at all costs so it's uh that's been pretty entertaining
0: have you had any any like really memorable moments in any of your campaigns like any crazy stories or anything i mean yeah there's so much
1: so much <laughs> it's funny when you give uh, i like to create puzzles and when you give You know, you you wonder how easy or hard is this puzzle going to be? And then one group will spend like three hours trying to figure it out. And the other group will solve it in 30 seconds. Um, It's, uh, it's, that's funny. And I, I, what did one of my groups do recently? They kill, (laughs) they, uh, they kill the child. They did kill a child um, instead of obtain the information they were supposed to get from him. Or no, they, they fed him. It's funny when a, when a, (laughs) when an item you give your group, like then they forget they have it. And then years later, you know, I, I'm trying to put their inventory list in front of them. Sometimes I print a sheet with your inventory. So you remember like, oh, you have the shiny special magical jewel to activate this thing. You just forgot you had it. But anyway, for some reason they had acquired this, this poisoned egg sandwich, or maybe this egg sandwich wasn't poisoned to begin with, but since they haven't used it in three years, like, in, yeah. like <laughs> both in game years and real years, I decided it was probably poisoned. And then they gave it to like a, like a, a starving child to to feed it, and so of course the the sandwich killed the child because it's old, and uh, and then there was then there was some zombie zombie issues following that, but I, I thought that was pretty funny.
0: Yeah, that's pretty cool. Well, it's funny because you know um, last year I interviewed Ross Stout that, and I asked him just, is there anyone else in the sort of political journalism world that, that is a science fiction fan that you know of. And the first thing he says is, Oh, you should talk to the people from reason magazine.
1: <laughs> yep. <So. laughs>
0: yep. We spend, uh, I mean, it used to be
1: after like, you know, after game of Thrones comes out, we all, we all know on Monday, we're going to spend two and a half hours at work just talking about the episode.
0: <laughs> and so, and I, I, and so I was looking at reason.com and I saw there's actually a science fiction like tag. On the website, and uh, I thought that was pretty telling. And I, I don't know of any other sci- uh, any other, um, like political website that I've looked at that has such an emphasis on science fiction. Would you, is that accurate? Do you think?
1: Yep. Yep. I mean, we're all pretty, I don't know that it connects to the ideology whatsoever, but we're all pretty nerdy. I mean, there's a, there's a futurist kind of uh, strain in libertarianism, a lot of interest in, space travel or private space travel uh those kinds of things Um just technology in general and yeah my colleagues like me are all just a bunch of nerds so <laughs> we're really excited for for dune and things like that a lot of a lot of dune fans among among people i know not just um not just at work but just kind of in political journalism in general
0: does anyone that you work with stand out as as the biggest science fiction geeks uh uh, reason
1: uh i th- i think it might be me well it's definitely me if you're including fantasy i don't know if you're drawing a hard distinction between the two uh um, no, no just
0: like fantasy and science yeah books, then yeah.
1: i it, it's got to be me then uh <laughs> I, I i think i have the most encyclopedic well i don't know i i haven't read um you know some of the more obscure i'm i'm you know I i know all the main stuff pretty well and then i have a very like encyclopedic memory for like you know, the history of House Targaryen or something that it doesn't, (laughs) a useless skill to have, but (laughs) I have it.
0: Well, that's good that I I came to the right place uh, right off the bat. I mean, Ross Stout, that he said Peter Suderman. Yeah, Peter Suderman, definitely a strong contender. Yep, (laughs) yep, yep, yep. So were you really into, like, Heinlein and, like, the sort of libertarian science fiction like that? Yep,
1: yep, yep. I was a big... uh scanner darkly love scanner darkly that's uh that's phil k Dick, right yeah 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 um fan of that um yeah i read moon is a harsh mistress is a is a gateway drug for a lot of people i read that one a long time ago Uh, a lot of my colleagues have read that um and i think that yeah that one does have some good libertarian themes in it
0: uh-huh. So, were you a libertarian first, and then you got into science fiction, or were you? a No, I was always
1: a, I was always a science fiction fantasy fan. I'm, I, I was kind of just a maybe a conventional uh, Republican when I was like very young. Um, I, I think with basically a libertarian outlook, I, I didn't. I, I became, you know, interested in political philosophy or or being a being a writer from an ideological standpoint. In, in I guess in end of high school, college, etc. But yeah, I was reading. A lot of sci- sci-fi fantasy before that. I don't know. Lord of the Rings is probably where I started, um, and then Dune. Uh, well, Harry Potter, that kind of stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think? Do you have anything else to say about why you think there is such a overlap of libertarians and science fiction? I mean, one one thing that occurs to me is that they both sort of involve kind of less popular, outside the box ideas, and maybe people who are drawn to you know less mainstream ideas or
1: I think there's a maybe there's a connection between not just libertarianism but any sort of kind of out there philosophy or non-conventional philosophy unconventional philosophy and, and attachment an attachment to world building like if we if we were starting over if we were uh, you know re re-envisioning reimagining society what would our society look like uh you know what would uh what would what would be the the rules for how you could treat other people what would what would that look like uh maybe a, a, a appeals to people who who have both uh an interest in in how that could look in a in a fantasy realm and and then how you know how we would like to imagine the world to be um in real life and also there's a i mean often often sto- i mean all stories but maybe especially fantasy and science fiction are you know, they're interested in questions. I mean, Game of Thrones, for instance, right, is very interested in, in the nature of power and what is it to to actually wield power and how do you obtain it and, and it, you know, questioning the kind of idea that it's always used for good or if we just elect the right people, like Lord of the Rings has this, which is kind of famously not concentrated on that question, right? We When the, the rightful king takes over and then we don't really have to worry about Aragorn's like economic policy or something hmm. because he, he's a good and just man and his his policies will be good and just. Whereas um you know Game of Thrones is considering well, even if you have a good and just person like Ned Stark in a position of influence, there might be all these political considerations that 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 thwart goodness from from prevailing because political incentives are very bad and and politics is not a good way to 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 realize a just and harmonious society, which is like a very libertarian idea that you have to you have to seek outside the political system the political system has all sorts of bad incentives for creating good outcomes so there's a lot of uh, you know in in the in the the chronicles of of kings and tyrants and such there's a, a lot of soft you know i'm not, i'm not going to say it's you know it's not beating you over the head with it but a lot of kind of soft lessons about how how political power can can be and often is abusive
0: you know when i interviewed Rust out, that he also said that that all pretty much all right-leaning geeks in his experience either gravitated to Lord of the Rings or to Ayn Rand. I was just curious is that has that been your experience?
1: Yeah, I I think Dune is also very popular. I think yeah, Lord of the Rings everybody has a starting place of some sorts. Obviously Rand's work was um, what brought, you know, basically everyone who was a very strongly self-identifying libertarian um the the, the works of Ayn Rand were what what brought probably the the majority of people to that ideology until at least like I, then, then Ron Paul was, you know, the figure who was, who was most associated with libertarianism and was bringing people to libertarianism in, in the aughts. But before that, it really was Rand, um, you know, her, uh, her, her works, uh, her works are the kind of works that are like hitting you over the head with libertarianism hmm. that are really, you know, directly uh, uh, it's not, it's not a subtle message so I don't know if it's ultimately a, it, it's, it's not an effective message for you know kind of um, I guess inculcating people subtly with these messages, <laughs> kind of you know steering you in a libertarian direction the way maybe lightly libertarian suggestive fantasy might be, but yeah. uh, but certainly they were important for a lot of people.
0: Yeah. All right, so let's let's talk about some of your articles that you wrote for reason.com. So you you reviewed Stranger Things, Wandavision, Philip K Dick's Electric Dreams, you recommended The Raven Tower by Anne Leckie, and then um there was this thing where they asked everyone what dystopian science fiction was the most you know, had the most accurate prediction and you said back to the future too. So could you tell us about that? Yep. Uh, you know, so, and there were
1: some other good choices that were taken by my colleagues. I'm not sure if I can remember what they were, but I picked back to the future uh, part two because we were, this was in the middle of, you know, Trump, Trump years and the, the, uh, the dystopia that, um that, that the doc and Marty McFly accidentally create when they create like the sports almanac paradox and they turn, uh, their version of, what is it, 1985 into, yep, yep. into, um, this, you know, kind of like com, this, this world run by Biff who is, who cuts a very Trumpian figure, kind of like a hilariously, well, maybe not hilarious, <laughs> darkly comic, uh, resemblance to the Trump in, in, in the kind of, you know the sort of pornographic sort of sort of um uh uh, crooked big businessman um and and you know controls all the controls the town and and is just like lording over his wealth and has this political power and is you know a really obnoxious jerk so it's it's kind of obvious um but uh but yeah, so th- that was my <laughs> that was that was my thought. I'm a big fan of Back to the Future Part Two. I love, uh, I, I mean, I love time travel. I really like time travel as a narrative device. Not to keep, you know, uh, uh, selling my D and D adventures, but uh, <laughs> I, I've introduced uh, <laughs> time travel. I, we we had actually, I'll tell you this: we had to have a virtual set. We had to do some virtual sessions during the pandemic, um, which are not nearly as fun as in person sessions. And I had this big, um, really cool kind of. Battle finale episode set in uh, set in Salt Marsh, um, one of the D and D campaign locations that we had to do virtually. And it still went pretty well. Everyone thought it was a great episode, um, but I, I I wanted to do it in person. So then I, I like several episodes later, several sessions later, when we were able to meet in in person again. I I had them, they had to go back in time, like they had to (laughs) do a back to the future thing where they had to revisit that battle and like avoid being seen by themselves or changing the things that had happened. Uh, So I thought that was a, that was a really, I was proud of myself for coming up with this cheat to be able to do it again and do it the right way.
0: Yeah. I mean, the thing that really jumped out at me about this, this little like review of back to the future too, that you had is that you say that uh, the, the writer, Bob Gale claimed that, That the biff from Back to the Future 2, the sort of dystopian biff was, was consciously modeled on Donald Trump. And I had read that and I had totally believed it. And then you sort of linked to this art, this uh, Snopes article that says that's almost certainly not true.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think he may, you know, I, it might be that, uh, it's a false memory sort of thing. Like he maybe remembers doing that, but, uh, yeah, Snopes said that was definitely not true or almost certainly not true, which is kind of funny.
0: Yeah and it's like and I'm I'm just I'm very invested in um critical thinking and and things like that and and just like it's just constantly so striking sort of frustrating how you just read things and just accept them without even really thinking about it and then you know and then they're just not true like that you know it's well human I mean, it's memory just, is really bad i mean people give people give you know eyewitness testimony
1: reports to things that are just wrong all the time like even even recent human human memory is bad you introduce details you fill in the gaps that's how the brain works so i could I could easily see someone over a long period of time saying oh yeah it's 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 kind of funny that this character is a lot like trump and then eventually that turning into yeah yeah i oh right didn't i didn't i think of trump when i made that character <laughs> um, yeah. or it's just kind of exploiting you know the situation to get back in the yeah.
0: headlines <laughs> yeah or kind of a little of both you know like something yeah. Yeah. You just sort of start saying something because it's a good story and it gets a good reaction from people. And then you just kind of start to believe it yourself over time. Yeah.
1: Right. The, the the fishing story, you know, the fish is this big. And then by the 10th <laughs> yeah. time you've
0: told the story, the fish is this big. Yeah. And then the other article that you wrote that I wanted to ask you about is that you had this article called uh, Transgender. This is the headline. Transgender writer forced to retract trans themed science fiction story. Could you just talk what, what was your experience kind of reporting on that story?
1: yeah this was uh she had written this story it was called something like i i identify or i sexually identify as a as an attack helicopter and it was really it was it was a really uh, interesting story but it was it was perceived to be a sort of um uh criticism or attack on the the trans community and they got it they got they got a i think either an apology i think they got the story take, taken down yeah uh, yeah and it, it was it but it was not meant to be uh, offense i mean it was the it was the, the author was not doing it from a, a place of malice and I, I i was going to be careful when I, I talk about these issues I, I am not i'm not a social conservative i am not um i don't have any animus or or anything towards i support um uh trans people of course but there's a there's a very um i i i've noticed that uh activists on behalf of this community are some of the most likely people to really um, attack you for for i i think things that aren't even really criticisms of them or uh and this seemed to be a case of that it's a very like people are very people have a high degree of sensitivity um around this issue uh, and and people who've uh who who write about trans issues uh unless they're writing from the position of complete and sort of worshiping agreement with what, with not even with what trans people are saying, but a- again, activists on behalf of this issue tend to come under um, heavy attack, uh, almost like ridiculous levels of attack. And that's kind of what happened here, if I recall.
0: Yeah, I don't know how much you followed the story after after your article, but um, there was this article that came out fairly recently on Vox called How Twitter Can Ruin a Life. I don't know, did you follow this at all? Yeah, Yeah, yeah I saw that, yeah. Yes. So, so ba- I'll just explain. So basically the article says that the, the author of the story was a, it was written under a pseudonym, but the author was Isabel Fall. And that after the story came out, um, that the author got, yeah, so much, um, so much negative response or, you know, some, you know, that, that, that she had to like, checked herself into a, a mental hospital for a couple weeks. And, and yeah, and the, and the, um, publisher had taken the story down at her request. And um, and it's just a really, really, it's really harrowing to to read this article. It's a really sad story.
1: Yeah, I, um, I've written. I mean, I've written a lot about cases of you know what people call cancel culture or what have you of you know people coming under uh, attack or criticism from having said something that you know maybe in some cases said something or written something or done something that maybe uh, unlike this example maybe was insensitive or offensive in some in some some way, but not, you know, not, again, not, they didn't kill someone. It's not, it shouldn't be the end of their the, their lives that they did this. And sometimes things they did or said from, that were from their own teenage years, like a long time ago. And it doesn't matter to kind of, you know, social media attacks these people. And it's very, it's a very harrowing, very miserable experience to be at the end of one of these things. I, a lot of people I've written about who've gone through this are just, I mean, they're in just horrible shape, um, both like mentally and emotionally. And then sometimes also, you know, there's going to be Google search results for this thing forever. And, you know, they get, they face actual consequences. And uh I think it's, <laughs> I think we we overreact really badly in a lot of these uh scenarios like this. I just wrote today about this professor at the University of Michigan, which is where I graduated many years ago. And he, he had shown... Lawrence Olivier, he's this famous professor of music. He's he's a Chinese American. You know, he grew up under the oppression of Mao. The Red Guard like confiscated his family piano when he was a child, and he's you know achieved this all these accolades. And so he sh- he teaches at Michigan, and he showed his freshman class uh, the 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 older version of the movie Othello, which stars Lawrence Olivier, who who is wearing like blackface for it, which is in- totally insensitive, not something that should be done. And he then, but the students went ballistic, and then he apologized. I'm not sure he, you know, being someone who grew up in China, I'm not sure he even knew really what the wh- why that's you know considered offensive here. And but he apologized, and still there, like they demanded he, st- he be he resigned, he stopped teaching, and they're they're like there are petitions about what a you know racist man this person is that are just and the university's investigating him. All his colleagues denounced him. It's like. <laughs> did you really escape the totalitarian uh, uh, environment after all? It's terrible.
0: Yeah. And there's just, you know, so many stories like this. And it just seems, you know, completely clear to me that there's a huge problem here and that, you know, that, that this problem of completely disproportionate punishments, um, you know, when people are are either completely innocent or have done just sort of ordinary level, you know, errors of judgment or, you know, bad behavior or something. Um, but there's just, there's just yeah there's this whole like sort of you know cancel culture isn't real like this is all totally fine it's just people uh, suffering consequences for their actions that that just seems to me totally out of touch with reality but it's you you hear that a lot um, yeah you, do, do you
1: yeah people get so mad at me for reporting on this stuff I mean I and that anger takes many different forms so first there's just a denial that this is a problem at all. And then they'll say, well, you know, why are you so obsessed with this? And then I'm like, well, why are you obsessed? Why do you care that I care? I mean, I'm, this is, these are stories of interest to me. I'm not saying this is the worst thing that has ever happened in human history. I'm not saying this is the most important story. I mean, we're we're not, but we can all, we can all have different interests and specialize in different things. I think this is a very troubling trend and I, I, I want people to know about it. That's all I'm saying. And, and it this makes people, some people are like furious that I report on these things. Uh, It's just, it it, is, and it's very weird, especially from, uh, for, I think for the progressive left, who, who often take, uh, or, or believe in criminal justice reform, for instance, which is something I support, you know, the idea that formerly incarcerated people should be able to live normal lives and they should be able to get jobs again. And you shouldn't necessarily, you know, have to ask them about their incarceration status. You can be forgiven which I totally agree with, but then someone who said something maybe racist when they were 15 and you found the tweet, they should never be employed again. That makes no sense to me. (laughs) Like absolutely makes no sense. What is that? That's a ridiculous standard. And, but yet that seems to be the standard that like a lot of people subscribe to.
0: Yeah. So, so I had some ideas about what we should do about this and you can tell me what you think about these, but Um, but one of the things is I think, you know, just if you see someone being punished excessively to just, you know, support them in any kind of reasonable way that you can, you could reach out to them privately. You could, you know, follow them on social media. You could support their Patreon. Uh, you know, you can offer them a job if you're in a position to do that. You know, I think it's like, I think it's a lot more important to support people than to attack, you know, to, to, to support people who have been targeted unfairly rather than attack you know, people who are causing problems. Because my 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 perspective is that there's the inf- the internet is always going to supply an infinite number of, you know, uh, malicious, unreasonable people, and you can't like do anything about that. Really, you can just sort tr- sort of try to uh, mitigate the harm that they cause.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with that. So my 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 two main approaches are: yeah, I want to provide. Because often we're operating off. Inaccurate or limited information in these in these blow ups at people. You know, if we're reacting to like a 10 second video clip of a negative interaction with two people, you know, the various dog park dog walking stories that have happened recently, the you know everything from the Covington kids and on, we're doing these things from small points of pieces of information. So I I often try to do some reporting and see well what happened before this video started being recorded. Is is there is it is it what we actually think is going on? And very often, almost always, there's more to the story. And then, yes, just like you said, I you know I want to, I, I, I want people should be able to be forgiven, and they should they should get support, especially when they're they've been treated so unfairly. So I try to draw attention to these cases. So the and I'm you know I'm happy to report in a number of times I've been able to like I, I wrote about a a choral composer, um who who. You know, he's this wonderful musician, a, a progressive, a liberal, um, but he was uh, really troubled during the protests two summers ago. Uh, they actually—I can't recall where exactly he lived—but they, they 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 set the historic courthouse on fire, and you know he just tweeted something like, or put it on Facebook or Instagram, like, please don't you don't don't do this. This is a bad. This is a bad tactic, and he got he got his entire career destroyed because of that. He he was, he would, will never be able to, um, to, to publish music with his, with his publisher because of the, the amount of people saying he was a racist for saying this. So I was a, but after I wrote about him uh, and, and this really ruined him, this it ruined him emotionally. But after I wrote about this, I had a lot of people, you know, reach out to me saying, well, I would, I, uh, you know, I would, I would get, I would hire him. I would commission him to do a piece, that kind of thing. And I'm able to, you know, put these people in touch. So that, that is absolutely something we should do because there's no real, there's no policy. There's no government policy change in particular. And we can't like put the, you know, we can't shut Pandora's box. We can't put the genie back in the bottle, whatever metaphor you want to use to like cure social media in general of this kind of thing. So
0: well, this is another thing I was going to ask you because, you know, and I don't know how you would feel about this as a libertarian, but I almost wonder if there should be some sort of government agency like FEMA or, you know, that, that that helps people who have been targets of cancel culture. Because I really feel like these social media mobbings, it's almost like a tornado, you know, it just like comes out of nowhere, strikes without warning, totally destroys your life. And then it's just sort of like beyond the the. The scope of the destruction is beyond what an ordinary person can absorb, uh, you know, and and, and sort of keep going with their life without major disruption. And so I wonder if there should be some, yeah, just some some government effort just to to lend support to people. It could be like a cross between FEMA and the Witness Protection Program or or something like that. Maybe cancel
1: insurance. Maybe that's what we need is cancel insurance. Although kind of all insurance is a scam. So I don't know. Sometimes I feel that way, at least. Insurance is a scam. Never covering the things they always find some way that the thing you need that you want the insurance payment for is not covered but i i mean i would definitely support like a private charitable organization or something that that was interested in helping people in these situations
0: yeah well i mean the stuff that you were doing you know um connecting people with people who would help them out that sounds really good and maybe there could be yeah maybe some private organization could yeah you know some network of people who would be like i'm well, i'm i'm um interested in hiring people who have been who have lost their livelihoods in a really sort of palpably unfair way. Yeah. I, I have connected people with a lot of, with attorneys
1: in several cases where, uh, where something, um, you know, more than just the social sanction, but a an unfair outcome in some other way. So in some legally actionable way and I've helped people find legal help for that kind of thing. So that can mm-hmm. be, that can be useful. It, it's just, it's just a, you know, it, it's a, it's, <laughs> I feel lucky that, I don't know how old you are, but I, I finished high school just before, um, smart, everyone had a smartphone. Um, and I, I now, now young people, everything they do and say is recorded because on video or it's in a text or something else. It's some format where it's more likely to, to sit, to stick around, to exist somewhere so that, Everyone everyone, at some point in their lives did something they would now regret if they had to hear themselves say it again. That's just the case for everyone. But now it's been recorded. So that I think that's why we see a lot of these things now. Because, it's, because often it pertains to something someone tweeted or texted or said like a long time ago. And then in their moment of triumph, bam, now they're not getting into the college they wanted, or now they're not getting the job they wanted, or now they're, you know, there's going to be news articles about their shaming when they were supposed to have just won an award or something.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess that, that, that gets us into your book. So let's, let's talk about that. So you have this new book out called Tech Panic. So, so why is it called Tech Panic? What's the panic?
1: Sure. So I think there's a, uh, so now we are, we have been talking about the downsides of social media, which, and I agree that this is one of the main downsides uh, that I do explore in the book. But I think overall, there's been a lot of panicking about social media disproportionate to the actual harm. And I know that's like a provocative and very contrarian thing to say, because there's actually a lot of like bipartisan and cross ideological concern about social media. I mean, the last few weeks of, about Facebook have been, you know, just like relentless. Oh my God, look how bad Facebook is. The series of scoops in the Wall Street Journal, uh, based on this whistleblower, Francis Haugen testified before Congress. Um, I'm listening to all this and obviously my book was written and, and was written before this stuff came out and published in the midst of it coming out. It's, it's just, it's fresh, but I, I, I'm hearing what is being said. And it, I think it actually fits what I say in my book, which is that, like a lot of this is hyperbole a lot of this is overblown uh specifically the stuff about young people and their level of addiction to social media the harm the uh the uh, emotional harm to young women is something that the wall street journal articles really hit and that the whistleblower has emphasized i don't know i i think there i, I i'm sure there are struggles um that, uh, these platforms make things worse for some um, young people. But like body image issues are not new. Uh, you know, glossy magazines, etc. cetera. There, there were these struggles before Instagram. I also think that social media, I, I, I'm looking at the data. I, I think social media probably helps a lot of kids overcome their depression or or better connect with their friends in healthy ways. The kids who use social media the least seem the most depressed of all, which is not surprising. And, you know, if the after the last, like two years, uh, we told young people, they couldn't, they couldn't do anything, right? They had to stay in their rooms, you couldn't see your friends, you couldn't do your sport, you couldn't engage in any normal, healthy socialization, I think they would be a lot more miserable if they had not had social media to fall back on. So we're emphasizing a lot of harms we're not really, we're, we're downplaying many of the very, very, very serious benefits that are reminiscent to me of past moral panics about new technology, including, you know, uh, well, video games being the most, the most recent one and kind of everything that was said, the moral panic about video games from like 20 years ago or more, um, is just turned out to not be true. Like they don't, They don't promote violence. They don't make, (laughs) they don't make, they don't don't turn young men into school shooters. Probably for young men who have the capacity to be school shooters, there's some evidence that violent video games might be an outlet other than committing real violence. So I think if anything, they deter violence. Um, and I wonder if, you know, 10 or 20 years from now, we'll look the same. We'll look back at this moral panic in a similar way.
0: Yeah. We'll talk about this guy, Tristan Harris, because you, you bring him up a bunch of times in the book. It seems like you're not, not really a big fan of him.
1: No, I'm not. Yeah, this is he's a former former Google employee who shares a lot of the same, and he's a he's the expert witness in this social dilemma documentary, which was on Netflix that I watched, and I think is just like a really terrible piece of propaganda. Which is ironic because it's considering it, it's it's <laughs> yeah. it's chief accusation is that social media sites you know are weaponizing propaganda and disinformation. But I, this this that this is a film on Netflix doing the same thing. But he is this former Google person. And, and, and the documentary has a lot of interviews from people like him, people who've left the tech sector and are just like, Oh my God, these technologies are melting our brains. They're the worst thing ever. They're so amazingly, awesomely cool and very bad. And aren't we like amazing for inventing them? Like, look how cool this is. And, but they're so bad. You you know what I mean? It's, it reminds me, I've used this metaphor before. They sound like Manhattan, like they think of themselves as like Manhattan project scientists who are now warning us about this like, super powerful, awesome, evil thing they created that I don't think is that <laughs> is that powerful and evil and awesome, but, you like, you have a high opinion of ver- yourself. But Harris, um, yeah, he just, he talks about social, the, the algorithms of social media, the the leveraging of the information they, that Facebook or Instagram or whatever obtains on you, and then how it uses that information for evil. But what it mostly uses that information for is to sell you, uh, is to show you advertisements that are more relevant to your interests. I don't think that is an inherently evil thing. I would actually like to be shown advertisements that are relevant to my interest. If I'm going to be shown advertisements at all, it, it would like, I like that when I'm on Facebook, I'm, I'm getting like D and D merchandise rather than commercials for cars. If I watch TV, <laughs> I get commercials for cars. Not going to buy a car, not relevant to me. I wish I could fast forward through them uh, on Facebook. I see things I might actually like. That's a good thing. I don't, if you inherently think that process is evil, okay. But I don't think it is, and I also think he's overstating. It's it's very reminiscent of the the subliminal advertising panic of like the 1960s. There was all this uh, of the Mad Men era. There was this idea that you could embed hidden messages in ads, and that would you know do like mind control. But that's not real. Like that wasn't real. That that's that <laughs> never actually existed. It's yeah. it's kind of what I think is going on here.
0: Yeah, well, you also have this pretty damning thing where he says, you know, um, nobody, you know, he's representing himself as an expert on technology and, and everything, but he says, you know, when bicycles were invented, nobody worried that bicycles were destroying society. And you, you sort of like cut to New York Times from August 1884, quote, there is not the slightest doubt that bicycle riding, if persisted in, leads to weakness of mind, general lunacy, and homicidal mania. <laughs>
1: yes. Yeah. Of, course, right. of course they said bicycles were ruining any, everything. Really, the villain of my book is actually the mainstream media and the New York Times in particular, which I, I don't think I carry a grudge against, but I'm often very critical of their reporting. So if you could go back through time and every invention, especially in the communication space, you can find them, you know, Absolutely panicked about it. They, they uh, went radio. They were, they were like, Oh, this is, this is over. Nobody's going to want to, you know, we're all going to be just listening to radio and not talking to each other. And we're going to, and you're going to put them in our cars. We'll all, we'll all die if you do that. They, the phonograph freaked them out. They called for Alexander Graham Bell to be killed. <laughs> it's, it's nuts. And, but it makes sense from an industry's perspective because a lot of these technologies compete or were perceived to compete by the New York times, by the mainstream media, by newspapers as a competitor. And I think that's the story with a lot of what's going on right now with social media and Facebook in particular, the mainstream media doesn't like that. Now it's really easy to have conversations that they're not in control of, that they can't put any guardrails around. It's happening all the time. And it it, it's eroded the sort of uh, the sort of monopoly, if you want to use that term, that, that, Uh, traditional sources of information had on telling you what to think and what you you should discuss. And they can't do that anymore. And they really don't like it. So they would like someone to come (laughs) to come along and break up these companies or regulate them or increase their liability protection in hopes it would kick it back to the way things used to be, which was better for them. And I I think that is a dynamic that is often missed here. It's like the people reporting on this stuff are, are like they're reporting, but they're part of an industry that feels very threatened that is threatened. That has been harmed by competition with these new technologies, these new these new platforms. And I wish more people understood that.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I to answer your question about my age, I think I'm a little bit older than you. But I, I grew up in the '80s and '90s, and you know, I, I I was playing Dungeons and Dragons as a kid, and people were saying it'll cause you to worship the devil and commit suicide, and. You know, I was playing Doom when they were saying that it, um, it'll cause you to become a smash shooter, a school shooter, that kind of stuff. And so I'm very cynical about these sorts of moral panics. And I'm, I'm pretty receptive to most of the stuff. You know, most of your message in this book, I I pretty much agree with most of what you say. I kind of had two things that I, I was sort of a little bit questionable about. And so one of them is that, uh, I'm very concerned about the tech companies. Um, you know, giving people life, to like like Twitter or YouTube, giving people lifetime bans for expressing opinions that are probably held by like 40 or 50% of Americans. And sort of your attitude in the book as I read it is kind of like, well, they're bad. The tech companies are kind of bad, but they're sort of acceptably bad or kind of manageably bad, and the alternatives would be worse. But I really worry that the – which, I mean, seems fair enough to me. But, I mean, I really worry that the next generation of leadership – um, are not, are going to be like actively hostile to free speech and viewpoint diversity, and things are going to get a lot worse. And then it's like, what's the, I feel like we need a plan. Like, what are we going to do if that happens? And I feel like your book doesn't, um, address that in a way that makes me, that reassures me.
1: That's a fair criticism. And I, I, I'm also concerned about that. I'm, I, I, guess, frankly, I'm not sure what to do. I, I, I guess I would say, I guess here's how I would answer that. I, I think. If we're focusing on it, if we're trying to address that problem, we're looking at, well, what changes could we make to the laws around the tech companies to protect against that outcome where it gets worse and the people in charge or the moderators are even more hostile to kind of free expression or contrarian speech or provocative ideas are are the things we could change about our laws for the tech companies to stop that. And I don't think there's very satisfying solutions that have been put forward and some of them i think would be be unconstitutional uh, so they're just not feasible from a practical standpoint or they would make things worse i think if we really want if we want to understand where this hostility comes from it actually relates more closely to the things i discussed in my in my my first book which is about how college campuses have kind of uh, so lib- elite college campuses have fostered uh a very odd values now that are kind of contrary to basic classically liberal or or even classically progressive policies about or, or philosophies on speech so if i was going to start looking at like well what can we actually change like we could have a different education policy right there's a lot of federal money tied up in education there's a lot of Policy aimed at encouraging people to take on as much debt as possible in order to go to the fanciest and most elite college where these kinds of norms have proliferated and then infiltrated the rest of society. So I would want to look a couple more levels in, I guess, to see if are we doing something there that is, you know, that we're raising this generation of like very eager censors or people who, you know, think of only a very narrow range of opinion should be, should be allowed. Um, I mean, these are already the people in who staffing traditional media. And then a lot of them are the people you're right that are staffing the social media companies, but they, they don't have quite have power yet. They're, they're definitely flexing their muscle and that is a problem. And probably we just have to brace for it and it's gonna be really miserable. And I don't have a satisfying way out of it. But if we wanted to do something to like, stop churning out this class of people, I think we probably have to tinker with the education system. Um, because that's where I, I see these values have been kind of arrived at, and I, yeah, and yes, I, and there we can do more. Because again, I, even from a libertarian perspective, but probably from any perspective, right? We can we can change our federal education policy. We can, you know, stop encouraging people to go to these horrible places. That kind of thing.
0: Yeah. Well, that kind of gets into my second thing that I, I wanted to bring up is that. And this is like I agree with you that most of the concerns I hear about social media I feel are, are sort of a moral panic, but the the one that I really have or really share is that it's breeding narcissism. That there's just something unhealthy about looking in a digital mirror all day long and posting photos of yourself and talking only to people in your peer group or only people who agree with you. And I mean, when I was in college in the '90s, it was unimaginable that anyone would say. Everyone has to agree with my politics or else I'm going to punch them. Right. I never heard anyone say that. And now that's just I would I feel like that's just a ubiquitous sort of sentiment. And I don't know where exactly that's coming from. But I feel like this sort of like weird, narcissistic, echo chambery, like twisted mirror of social media is a not unlikely candidate for for where a lot of that is coming from.
1: I get that because a lot of it certainly feels and looks unhealthy. I mean, but th- there are challenges to that though, right? Because there, I mean, I'm not saying that's wrong, but you know, I, I mean, I've seen people put forth the idea or even study it that, you know, real life echo chambers can be really bad too, um, especially for it, it in, in the rest of the world uh, or in, in, I shouldn't say the rest of the world, we're in trouble with it, in, uh, in less developed parts of the world. Where social media gets introduced, it it now it can come with <laughs> very bad sides. What happened in Myanmar is really bad. But often the introduction of social media means expanding people's access to information and, and different perspectives instead of just like, you know, the narrow, the people they're talking to in their village where there's going to be much more groupthink, often dangerous groupthink, often like kill your neighbor over a minor dispute groupthink. Um, you know, like that's the state of that all people lived in until like the Enlightenment and on. So, I, there, there's, there's some at least mixed evidence that, that social media might not promote the group think, or if group think's being promoted, it's not, you know, we're doing that on our, on our own. We're seeking out these like-minded environments, and we, we do that in, in, in person, too. Um, but I mean, I, I get the, sort of the narcissism point. It's definitely not healthy to look at your phone all day, to just spend all your time on these platforms. I guess I have difficult telling whether everyone does that, or just, those of us in the kind of journalism or policy or tech world, I think we might be more susceptible to that. And then, you know, young people are are right. They're doing it too much. They should do it less, but I don't know. I I think uh, if if there's a, a silver lining to these hearings and the amount of outrage right now from the political class about social media, it could be that it could prompt these companies to innovate um, some kind of safeguards without being formally told to do so that um, makes the, you know, makes us more able or slightly more able to turn them off some of the time. Um, I mean, I definitely advocate for parents to do a better job limiting how much time their kids spend on social media. Um, You know, it's, these are, these are hard things to solve. I'm not sure there's no satisfying way to just like fix it. So I'm just trying to say I'm not sure it's as bad as people think. But maybe it is, I guess we'll find out. <laughs> I don't think it is.
0: Well, could I mean I I think the problem I see as, you know, with YouTube creators and things like that is that, you know, you'll you'll post something and then they'll be like, "Oh, we're we're striking your account or we're locking you out of your account or something cuz you violated our terms of service and we're not going to tell you what exactly you did or how you violated the terms of service. But if you want to appeal, you can press this button and then you press that button. It's like, Oh, your appeal has been denied. And it's, the process is so opaque. And I do wonder if, um, if there's some role for, for the government to come in and say, look, you have to be more transparent about who's making these decisions, how they're being made. Uh, what, what exactly you have to say, tell people exactly what, uh, policy they're violating and maybe like, you know, say to these companies, like, you know, you have, you know, we're not going to tell you what system to come up with, but you have to come up with some sort of system, like with, like, you know, getting points on your driver's license, where it's not just like you lose your life, you know, you get one speeding ticket and you lose your driver's license for the rest of your life. You know, the, I, you you have yeah. to like get points and then your points come I off. I
1: definitely think these companies should be more transparent about their policies and enforce them more equally and work with people. But I and I've heard this complaint a lot, and obviously I'm sympathetic to it, but. I still have to point out that generally people who are creating content on YouTube and monetizing it have much, 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 much greater creative freedom and, and, um, job protections not the right word, but likelihood of not having some kind of adverse outcome than just anyone employed by like a company for any reason. Right. I mean, the, or the experience of getting fired unfairly is one tons of Americans will have in it and it sucks. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'm very closely ideologically aligned with my, with my, my company. I, you know, I, I, I'm not going to get fired, but if I started saying crazy things or things they really, really disagreed with normally, I would get fired. And that's, that less likely to me that that would happen on YouTube. So I'm hearing, I, I hear a lot of complaints from people on YouTube and I don't, again, I, I know there's been cases where they, they've done a lot of bad things. I'm, I've been recently um, co-hosting uh, this YouTube show, Rising for for the Hill, um in the mornings uh the the permanent hosts were Sager and Jetty and Crystal Ball and uh they they struck off on their own. I've been doing it with a bunch of different people and I've been co-hosting it with uh, Kim Iverson and she's been on YouTube a long time and she's like a real lefty, left 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 person. And yeah, she's had a lot of trouble with YouTube um punishing her for uh for for making, you know, re- very uh to my mind reasonable critiques of kind of some pandemic stuff um and, and yeah it's definitely not good but it's just not you you you, <laughs> you can you can be you can get in an unfair employment situation like a lot even without social media um now i i i absolutely think they should i I'm, I'm for them taking less aggressive action basically in every case and i think they've done they've done a lot of they made a lot of bad calls um uh some some of the bad calls that they've made specifically with relation to the pandemic i think have been pushed on them or like aggressively demanded of them by the government and the, the, I mean, this is a problem, right? You have everyone in the mainstream media barking at them that they have to take down, that they should take down every piece of remotely problematic or contrarian content that, that offends any single person in the mainstream media for any reason. And if they don't do that, they're, you know, they basically... They're basically a Nazi organization, and <laughs> we're going to demand that you be regulated out of existence. That's the reality they face, and uh, I'm not sure their decisions aren't rational, given those those threats.
0: Yeah, no, I, I definitely take your point that things aren't as bad as people make them out to be. And I think everyone should should read your book, because I think you make a really good case. And it it, it does have sort of a calming – it did have sort of a calming effect on me. And it's, it's not a perspective that you hear a lot. I mean, you point out that that everybody is – is is sort of, you know, against these companies now from Ted Cruz to, you know, Eliz- uh, Elizabeth Warren. I mean, it's like, it's like everybody, you, you, you don't hear them being defended by almost anyone.
1: Yeah. It, and it's weird, because they're calling for specifically with Section 230 reform, like, get rid of Section 230. Donald Trump tweets this. Joe Biden supports this. Elizabeth Warren wants this. And like a bunch of Republican senators, including Josh Hawley want this. And maybe for a lot of people, they go, well, if everyone in in government thinks this, maybe that means it's right. Whereas I go the opposite way. (laughs) If everybody wants this, it's definitely bad. And in fact, I think um, changing Section 2, i mean, especially getting rid of it, maybe it could be changed in some way, but getting rid of it would be the most catastrophically bad change you could. it It would not at all solve the problem conservatives are worried about, which is that they're being censored too much. It would indeed result in like, vastly more censorship almost immediately so it's I, I truly don't understand why they like this idea it's such a bad idea it's so bad i get why elizabeth warren likes it because she wants to have less uh, less speech that is conservative on these platforms uh, but i don't agree with that goal but I, I see why she likes it from a tactical standpoint i don't i don't understand how they've tricked many republicans into supporting it it's such a bad idea
0: yeah, I, I thought your section on your your section on section 230 was really good, and it, it definitely clarified some things for me in terms of it not being about um, publisher versus platform, but being about content provided by the organization versus right y- independent uh, content providers. Or yeah, right. It's just it's
1: just very you know necessary for. I, I don't think I really think most users would not want to revert or change to a scenario where you can no longer post at will because Facebook is worried that they could be sued for your post. I mean, this could result in, I mean, trying to imagine how they would even deal with this. This could be that now only people with blue check marks can post on Twitter because the site has some confidence that you won't say libelous things, or they're going to review it ahead of time or, you know, any number of things, Uh, or you have to be, you have to like pay to use the service or something like that. It just seems, it seems not good from a, I don't think anyone would want to go to that. I think most people would not want to go to that. Maybe again, maybe the maybe the mainstream media, maybe the people whose opinions are ne- are least likely to be deemed controversial by the people making moderation decisions at these companies, perhaps they benefit. But everyone else should be very skeptical of that.
0: Yeah. Uh, before we run out of time, I also want to ask you. Um, you know, I, I read your your previous book. Um, it's called Panic Attack. And one of the, the thing that really has stuck in my mind is because I said, you know, the Satanic Panic was a big part of my childhood. I mean, I you know, people telling me I worship the devil and, uh, you know, teachers banning Dungeons and Dragons and all this stuff. And and it's it actually comes up a lot in the show, you know, talking about Dungeons and Dragons or, you know, 80s horror movies or things like that. So I thought I was pretty well familiar with the Satanic Panic. But until your, I read your book, I had absolutely no idea that Gloria Steinem and Ms. Magazine – were involved in the Satanic Panic. Could you just talk about, like, how did you come across that and, and just talk about that?
1: Yeah, it's it's a really odious history that's been totally forgotten that uh, second wave feminists uh, like Gloria Steinem and some others and in, in the magazine that she's part of promoted uh, this totally false idea that there were all these child um, kidnappings and and daycare centers and parents were were sexually abusing children and as part of satanic worshiping cults. This was an idea that, that had a lot of, it had some mainstream media uh, penetration and it, like there were trials. People went to, people went to prison. It, 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 it's actually very easy to suggest an idea to anyone and have them tell you, yep, that's what happened. If you interrogate them long enough, this is why people falsely accuse of things, confess all the time. They police get in their head. If you're in a dark interrogation chamber for a long time, um, it, it, like it happens all the time. It's especially easy to do to children. They're very suggestible. They don't really understand what they're saying. So there were, there were convictions There were people went to prison for years and years and years, um, convicted of a re- absolutely false crime that was not happening. This was not happening at all. But uh, some second wave feminists, including Gloria Steinem, were promoting this idea as as like, it was a, it was a, it was an attack on women kind of issue, and I I found out about it because I, I'm uh, I'm friends with uh, Wendy Kaminer um, who is uh, was was formerly with the ACLU and the board of the ACLU and she's written a lot about this and 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 criticisms of second wave feminists who tended to be very um, uh, against legal pornography as uh, a libertarian and she's you know she's a kind of classic ACLU person for freedom of expression so she was very uh, against the second wave feminist effort to criminalize um, pornography and prostitution and things like that uh so her work is very good and i highly recommend it but yeah she uh she had some uh some anecdotes about the work that steinem did on this front that was again really bad and so funny for the the degree to which we cancel people for things they got wrong a long time ago that that she is very much still like like a like a feminist icon or a person in good standing because the advocacy of her magazine like ruined people's lives uh, on like the the most horrible charge anyone could be charged with, like raping a child for Satanism. And it was, it was totally made up, totally made up.
0: Right. And, and this, the the most famous um, satanic panic court case was called the McMartin preschool investigation. And so, so the organization pushing this, which Gloria Steinem, you say funded was called believe the children Right, and so so this is the line that has really sort of haunted me ever since I read your book. You say, uh, but the idea that people should automatically believe the alleged victim of a sexual crime, irrespective of the credibility of the accuser or the plausibility of the accusation, did not die with second wave feminism, like the spirit of Sauron. It endured in spectral form until conditions were favorable for its return
1: i'm I'm glad I was able to get that line past my publisher. yes, the reference to Sauron there. <laughs> Um, Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about it because of the, you know, the very central to me Too advocacy point that, you know, we should, uh, I mean, they, they would say this, that we should believe, believe victims, believe women, I think, obviously, we should support people who make these kinds of accusations, we should not dismiss them, we should, you know, we should comfort them, and we should investigate them. And we should listen very closely, because sexual misconduct is a very serious issue that has been overlooked. Uh, historically, people were not believed, the legal system did not treat women who who made these claims correctly, all of that. But you can't, people do, <laughs> say, pe- like, it's not that women lie about the, it, but just people lie in general, people are liars, people, people lie. So you have to have some, some people are fabulous, some of these things and all sorts of things turn out to be false. So you can't obviously a standpoint that you would automatically believe, like doesn't, it just doesn't work. Like we've seen that not work. Like Joe, I mean, Joe Biden <laughs> has said that that should be the standard. And then he was accused of sexual misconduct by Tara Reid during the campaign. And, you know, then he tries to go, well, I didn't mean, you know, automatically be believed. He said, yeah, but it, that is what they said. But it's a it's a really bad slogan. It's a really bad idea if you actually think that because, it, and it also, like it's counter to sort of liberal norms of due process that you're you're, that if we're going to, uh especially if we're gonna apply some punishment to you some kind of sanction and and you know that it's a it's a it's only a strict requirement if we're talking about punishment in a in a legal sense, but I think still that you should have you know even a social sanction there should be some not a requirement but a if you're a charitable human being you know apply some kind of standard of due process or some kind of you know what i mean and and that was very much has not been a part of of this uh kind of extreme strain of of Me Too activism, which you've seen with some of the cases where I think it very much went overboard, like Aziz Ansari, like some of the things I've seen on college campuses, and uh, and that's that's what I had in mind when I was looking at this sort of yeah believe the children, believe the children, eerily familiar.
0: Yeah, and it's just it was just so striking to me that that was it has such obvious parallels to the present day and was was not discussed that I had to read your book like your book was the only way I knew that that. That that ever happened?
1: Well, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's uh you have to <laughs> you have to you have to have kind of some some process for for considering these things. I mean you can't just else anyone like can accuse anyone of anything. Well what then you accuse the person who accused you and that has to be believed too, which sounds ridiculous, but I cover a lot of campus sexual misconduct trials and uh the the, the policies were very bad for most of the twenty teens, uh because the federal government forced them to have very bad policies. But there was a tremendous benefit uh, from the that is going to the weeds a bit, but there was a tremendous benefit to being the first accuser in like a college hookup gone wrong because you had even if you thought it was consensual, but what if the other person doesn't and if they make the complaint first, then you get branded as the accused and then your effort to accuse them will be labeled retaliation under Title IX. So you' be- there's no penalty for accusing. And and being wrong or having it not go anywhere, or there's less there's less likely you get in trouble. So I was seeing some cases where I'm I'm pretty sure, especially cases where like a man accused a woman of sexual misconduct after this kind of hookup, where I'm just I, I'm thinking, in all likelihood, I think this person leveled the first accusation to cover themselves in case they get accused, which is a pretty pretty perverse outcome of this kind of system.
0: Yeah. Um, I guess just the last thing is that you mentioned that um, there's been this sort of Texas where am I saying that right? Texas that, that all these um, tech companies and people are leaving California and moving to Texas. And uh, I'm a recent uh, resident of Austin. So this kind of interest interested me in particular, but you know, and I know that like, Elon Musk has come here. Joe Rogan, Ben Shapiro. I think it's been this whole thing. I was just wondering if there is there anything else you can say about kind of what is the current state of uh, of the Texas?
1: Right. Well, you hit you hit the big names. Um, I, I mean, I think these people feel a, livi- a little driven out by you know the hostility. I mean, California is a very uh, a very blue place, and obviously Austin is a blue place too. But it's it's just they have. I mean the the culture of Silicon Valley, I think, has become somewhat hostile to innovation, and it it has made people leave. And then the point, my point, of bringing that up was so let's not repeat that nationally, which is what so much like the the, the anti tech rhetoric coming from everyone in Congress is so totalized. They are they are treating social media like um, like big tobacco right now. That's what we heard that over and over again. But big, but big tobacco has killed millions of people. And I don't even the most serious accusations against Instagram, no one thinks it's killed, you know, <laughs> like hundreds of people, right? It, it's so it's a ridiculous comparison, but this kind of like knee jerk anti-tech uh, sentiment coming from policymakers, lawmakers, et cetera, does not serve our country. Well, does not serve our society. Well, does not serve innovation. Well, um, I mean, there's a lot of ways in which it would kind of like leave us backfooted in some global conflict with China. Um, but like this, this could absolutely be the reality that, that we become a place that's unfriendly to, entrepreneurship and, and creativity and innovation. And, you know, again, that's not that there are no problems with these companies whatsoever, but they have, we forget that they have made our lives better in a lot of ways. And a lot of people really like them. I, I point out in the book that, you know, Amazon is far more popular than Congress. So should, <laughs> who, should big governments going to break up big tech, maybe I, the more popular thing would be for big tech to break up big government. But perhaps <laughs> that's my libertarian fantasy.
0: Are you, like, what's been your experience with this book? Are you feeling like the message is getting out there, that people are receptive to it? Like It's only been out for
1: about 10 days, I think, so I have no idea. Um, I Yeah, I have no idea. I've, I mean, I've had, actually, I had both reactions. I've had some, a lot of people say, wow, your book feels really timely because of all, everything we're seeing. But then I've heard some people go, oh, do you regret writing that book? Because now we're finding out that we should be panicked. I'm like hmm. no, no, none of this has changed. What I this is confirmation of what I think. This is the mainstream media grasping at straws in order to destroy their hated rival. If you if you read my book, you'll see why that is. So, but I don't know.
0: Hmm. So, do you have any uh, any final thoughts? Do you have any other projects you're working on that you want to let people know about?
1: Sure, you can read uh, you can read my work um, at uh, at Reason.com or follow me on Twitter at Robbie Suave, and I'm also on uh, my own YouTube show. I was part of Rising. Uh, most weekday mornings these days. not sure how long that's going to go on, but that 's what i'm doing right now and uh yeah my my next book the the, the panic three the to complete the panic <laughs> trilogy i don't I have no idea what it's going to be, and I would honestly rather uh just finally get to publishing that fantasy novel, so we'll see if I can sell my publisher on that
0: oh so you have a you have a fantasy novel that you 've written or that you're working on or
1: that i've been working on for like ten years i'm one of those guys oh, wow. but rather than trying to force my friends to read it. I they're playing Dungeons and Dragons with me and they're they're going through the story it's like a it's a homebrew kind of thing. I mean I use some of the settings for D&D from for the campaign but the story is very much exported and adapted from my from my own work. So I'm like getting feedback on like what narrative strands and what characters they like. It's a it's a cool hack I've come up with instead of getting people to actually, you know, read my fantasy, which is <laughs> it's hard to do.
0: Well, no. I hope you are able to get that published, and then maybe we can have you back on sometime as uh, as fantasy author, Robbie Swabe. That
1: would nothing would make me happier. <laughs>
0: uh, all right. So we've been speaking with Robbie Swabe about his book Tech Panic. So Robbie, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Robbie Swabe for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about
1: the show,